Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, bringing you the August Alternative Investment News Roundup. We're going to be talking about tax increases, more IRS agents, potential changes to how non-traded REITs are treated by state regulators, and a whole lot more. And with me, I have Michael Johnston, the VP of Business Development at AltsDB and Opportunity TV. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andy. I feel like we just did this and I blinked and we're back here again. So the months are flying by right now. Yeah, summer just goes too fast. I mean, it, as you get older, they say that time speeds up, but uh, I think summers especially uh, seem to go especially fast. And, you know, I, I thought we were going to um, get through 2022 without any tax increases. It looks like that may not be the case. We're, we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, we're going to start the first link from Bizno. Uh, housing has not been this unaffordable in 15 years. Uh, shouldn't be any surprise, right? Because we've, we've had this one-two punch of an incredible rise in housing prices, followed by now we have an increase in interest rates and mortgage rates. And, you know, Michael, I, you, you'd expect that with the economy slowing down, and with mortgage rates going up, that housing prices would adjust downward. But I think we're in that sort of awkward lag period where home sellers are still kind of hanging on and crossing their fingers, and they haven't quite uh, faced the reality that you know 2021 may have been the near-term peak mm-hmm. in housing prices, and their house may not be worth what it was. Um, but let's let's get to some of these facts in the article. So the national index dropped to 102.5 in May, the lowest it has been since July 2006, when it stood at 100.5, um, also close to July 1990, when it came in at 100.2. Now, this is interesting. NAR formulates the index based on median existing home prices, median family incomes, and average mortgage rates. An index above 100 means that a family with a median income had more than the income required to afford a median priced home. So a higher index means more affordability on average for more buyers. But Michael, I kind of laughed when I read about this formula because 100 means affordable. And it sounds like this index basically never drops below 100. So (laughs) (laughs) if you're the NAR, if you're the NAR, I guess you you never want to admit that you know, housing is basically totally unaffordable. But when you're even getting close to that point, I guess, when the NAR is even getting close to admitting that, that means that uh, things are pretty rocky, right? Yeah, I think you need to recalibrate that scale a little bit. I mean, it's all relative, right? So Andy, here's some some real numbers that'll help to put this in perspective. So uh, a couple of years ago, the median home price was $320,000. So if you were taking, if you're putting 20% down and borrowing the rest, you'd have a mortgage of about 256,000. And now the median home price has gone up to 440, $440,000. So if you're doing that same 20% down, which let's you know just say that you are, I know a lot of people put down less, you're borrowing about $350,000. 
And then a couple of years ago, interest rates were 3% and now they're 5.3%. So kind of mechanically how this works out, and I'm simplifying here, a couple of years ago with lower prices and lower mortgage rate, your monthly payment was, in my example, $1,079. And then it's gone up, prices have gone up, rates have gone up. You're paying now $1,995, almost $2,000. So almost doubling. So those don't sound like crazy numbers going from 5%, excuse me, going from 3% to 5.3% and prices going up, the median price going up from 320 to 440. But just mechanically how it works, it's doubling what you're paying on a monthly basis. Um, Again, in this simplified example. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's meaningful, you know, regardless of whether or not it's at a uh, hundred or uh, three stars or four squares or however you want to score this, right? The dollar amount is is going up here. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because we keep hearing, you know, it's a political talking point, but, it, but I mean, it's also shows up in the unemployment stats that we have a very strong job market, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's true on the surface level when you look at unemployment stats, the unemployment rate is very low. But underneath that, uh, number one, there's all kinds of ways that the unemployment rate is not necessarily the best metric to track. But also, if you look at wage growth in real terms, it is not kept pace with inflation. But Michael, as, as you pointed out, inflation specifically in housing has far outpaced the CPI or you know blended basket uh, type inflation rate. And even that official inflation rate has outpaced nominal wages. So real wages are not only negative compared to inflation, but if you compare real real wage growth compared to the growth in housing prices over the past three years, I mean, talk about an extreme swing or an extreme spread, right? Workers might be looking at 12%, 13% real wage growth, if that over over the past 24 to 36 months compared to an almost doubling in the nominal price of their you know monthly payment for a single right. family home i mean that's crazy yeah and and that's not happening in a vacuum either right it's not like everything else is being held steady you know in addition to the potential cost of your monthly mortgage payment doubling uh, gas prices have doubled. They've pulled back a little bit uh, recently, but I, I think you know from from a year or two ago they've still doubled. Uh, a lot of grocery prices have have doubled. So it's not like this is an isolated uh, pain point that can easily be absorbed. To your point, wages aren't rising as much as some of these these other factors, um, and and you're kind of getting hit. You're getting hit from all sides here. Um, and and I think what that means, Andy, is you know a lot of people won't be buying houses um and it kind of ripples you know it, it ripples throughout the throughout the economy and it's you know it's interesting to, to just kind of look at at how some of these numbers line up here uh the other thing that kind of jumped out to me is that the the average let's see the average first-time home buyer is 33 that's kind of been where it's been for a while uh, it's ticked up a little bit so that means someone born in in 1989 uh, and that means someone who is graduating from college and in, in 2010 when unemployment was basically 10%, nine and a half percent, somewhere, somewhere in there. Um, so, so that's been a pretty, you know, pretty challenging uh, timeline there coming out of college uh, for a lot of those folks when unemployment was, was really, really high in the wake of the great recession. And now when they reach their, their home buying age, uh, they're, they're priced out of the market. So it'll be interesting to see how that 
kind of impacts uh, investor psychology uh, for a, a large chunk of Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just one more comment. Obviously, sales volume, transaction volume in residential homes, it's fallen off a cliff in the past few months. And I know there was some talk earlier this year about reforming the 1031 exchange program. And I was talking with Jimmy Atkinson about this, and he made the point, you know, the, the 1031 exchange really kind of greases, greases the wheels of so much of the real estate market, right? If you imagine if Section 1031 exchange went away, how many fewer real estate transactions there would be. So now think about if they made any sort of change or limitation on Section 1031 exchanges at this point in the market where volume has already fallen off a cliff, even how much worse it could be. And thankfully, we've received news uh, in the latest uh, form, latest variation of Build Back Better, which may pass the Senate and ultimately be signed into law. Uh, it doesn't look like there is any limitation or any new restrictions placed on the 1031 exchange program, but we'll get to that update in just a minute. I'm going to bring up our next link here uh, on the Wall Street Journal opinion page. So now we're shifting gears to policy, a uh, little bit of, of politics, a little bit of legislation now. And, you know, Mike, I, I don't want Alts TV to be a political show, but obviously this, you know, the politics of, of taxes and regulating, um, you know, regulating publicly traded securities and uh, private securities is, is really uh, affects all of these markets and all of these products quite a bit. So I think we're going to be covering a lot of policy and politics in today's show. So just a fair warning for everyone. So this, this uh, op-ed was about uh, a labor department rule that is going to push fiduciaries to, to favor ESG considerations uh, above, you know, the the shareholders' best interest potentially, um, it, it, and so Mike, I, I want to dive into this, and you know, it's it's a little bit of a, a touchy subject. You know, different players have different feelings uh, about ESG, and you know, the term can even mean different things to different people. But but I really think that. You know, this could potentially be a sea change because last year, the U.S. Labor Department, they proposed a regulation that would tell retirement fund managers to consider ESG factors such as climate change and, quote, collateral benefits other than investment returns, end quote, when investing employees money. So that doesn't sound like a fiduciary duty to me. That sounds a little bit more like an ideological goal that is trumping the fiduciary duty uh, for these fund managers. Where am I going wrong, Michael? No, you're not going wrong. I mean, it's those, those two things are, are contradictory. Uh, you know, I'm just reading, just read this text here, uh, collateral benefits other than investment returns. And you're asking a fiduciary to do that. Like that's just, that's a contradiction. Uh, fiduciaries have a responsibility to their, clients to make investment decisions with basically one goal, which is to, to maximize the investment return for their uh, for their clients. And typically that means they can't pick these expensive, historically what it's meant, in a lot of contexts what it means is they can't pick these investment products that have really high expense ratios or these products that pay them the most. Uh, they, they, they can't consider that. They have to, to think about what is best for their client. Um, but it's 
the, the same concept here that they need to consider kind of one thing only, what is best for their clients, what's going to maximize their client's return, risk-adjusted return. Uh, so, so asking them to, to take into account these, these other things, I think, as the article points out, potentially opens up the door for some lawsuits. It creates some confusion. You know, it creates some confusion in my mind, Andy, um, about you know, what, what they should be doing and what their obligations are. Um, but, you know, the fiduciary standard is, is kind of beautiful in its simplicity. Um, and this seems to me to be muddy in the waters quite a bit. Yeah. And I don't even understand all of the legal issues at play because, you know, from the article here, retirement and pension fund managers are fiduciaries. They are legally required to make every investment decision with that one purpose, maximizing the retiree's financial interest. So the Uniform Prudent Investor Act, which is a model law that has been adopted by 44 states, makes clear that, quote, no form of so-called social investing is lawful if the investment activity entails sacrificing the interests of beneficiaries in favor of the interests supposedly benefited by pursuing the particular social cause. So it sounds to me like this proposed regulation from the U.S. Labor Department may violate state law that's already been adopted by 44 states. And you know, again, this may be a field that's full of landmines, but I'm just going to wade into this field. You know, supposedly benefiting particular social causes. I recently wrote my own op-ed at AltsDB, and you know, ESG. I, I think this whole idea of ESG and and how it's operating in the corporate world, in the asset management world, it's on the one hand, it's a very big deal right? More and more, you hear the term, you see people taking it seriously. But I also see a huge segment of professionals and investors who are beginning to tune it out, who are beginning to openly mock it or laugh at it because it has been so politicized, because it has been, um, honestly, it's, you know, in, in some contexts appears to be taken over by ideologues. Um, so, it, you know, in my op-ed, I talked about the fact that um, Tesla was removed from the S&P's ESG index, right? And, and of course, uh, the S&P had some sort of justification for why Tesla would be removed. But it's a really bad look for the world's most successful manufacturer of electric vehicles to be removed. For I mean, it, it seems like they would otherwise be the poster child of ESG, but um, you know, ac according to the index criteria, you know, there are other quote social factors at play. And and once we're once we're going there, this is becoming so subjective. It's becoming so uh, political. It's becoming so, you know, it's at the whim of whatever you know, the flavor of the day is, whatever is fashionable. Yep. Uh, politically, and, and the corporate world is not immune to that, and asset managers are not immune to that. And so, I I think when things like this happen, when the S and P kicks out Tesla out of their S and P index, you know, it 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 makes so many investors, so many financial advisors, so many people in the industry just roll their eyes at the entire concept of ESG. So now, for the labor department to say actually managers are required to use ESG as, as the driving factor 
in their investment selection. Um, I mean, to me, that's crazy it, because so many investors aren't even on board with this at all. Like, you know, they don't agree with ESG criteria that, you know, even, even if you, even if you say, of course, I, I want better uh, environmental protections, the devil's in the details. And, and there's a lot of disagreement on how we achieve those. Um, yeah, Andy, so- I think the, the key word that you used there was subjective, right? Like this is not as you don't, put something on a scale and you get an ESG, you know, how it's not as simple as, as measuring something. It's not black and white. It's, it's very subjective. And I think, I think, I don't think there's any debate about that. I don't think that's a controversial statement that ESG scores. And I say scores because there are lots of different methodologies are subjective. And, and I think, you know, to, to kind of why that sets off alarm bells for me is because it's a, a quick hop, skip and a jump from these, subjective methodologies to corruption where you're you're paying someone you're bribing someone you're otherwise influencing them to kind of twist the methodology or to give this company a more favorable score um, because if, if changing your score impacts how dollars flow to you then absolutely people are going to game that they're going to greenwash it as a term that we're kind of hearing more and more as companies figure out how to game the system and, and get the investment dollars to flow to them so i mean it, it sets off alarm bells for me and, and you know i'm, I'm not going to make any apologies for for being a, a big fan of capitalism but whenever investment dollars are flowing to something other than the best idea and then the best executors uh, that, that sets off alarm bells for me and i know there's folks out there and yes capitalism is is not perfect but uh over the long haul it's been pretty good at lifting people out of poverty and extending life expectancy and literacy rates and all of these these really great things as well as quality of life um so i'm i'm on my my soapbox a little bit here i think we're we're kind of aligned here but um yeah this sets off some alarm bells for me when you're uh, coercing people um essentially yeah, well, that's the key keyword to me is coercion, because, you know, like you, I'm a big fan of capitalism, but I, I'm also, frankly, in, in favor of ESG in the sense that I think an individual investor should be investing in a way that they're comfortable with. You know, if, if I don't want to invest in a, a cigarette company, I don't need to invest in a cigarette company if I'm not comfortable with that. If someone else is not comfortable investing in an arms manufacturing company, they don't need to invest in that. I, I think what what bothers us is the idea that there would be a central authority that can decide these things and, you know, use that coercion, um, you know, to, to sort of stack the deck in favor of desired social goals. Um, yeah. And, and, and Andy, you said, you know, at the top, like, I, you know, I don't want to be political here. And I think that's the point is that this, this shouldn't be political and we're, we're, you know, beaten up on the, the current administration because they're the one pushing this, but investing shouldn't be political. It shouldn't, you know, come, come in and out of favor uh, based on, you know, who, who's been elected. It should be the, the money should flow to, to what the, what the best ideas are. And, and I'll point out that, you know, Tesla's worth $900 billion and, People spend, I think, seventeen billion dollars a year at Whole Foods, and you know the list goes on and on. Uh, people vote with their wallets, even when they're, you know, no one's been been forced to to shop at Whole Foods. No one's been forced to buy an electric car, um, but but people do it because they're they're great products, um, and and there's a uh, they, they're delivering things that that the market wants, and and I think in my mind that's the way it should be. Yeah, there's no need to stack the deck. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. right. That's right. 
And, and speaking of voting with our wallets, I'm going to bring up the, the next link from Bizno. Uh, the headline here, no IPOs, REITs going private, the shrinking world of publicly traded real estate. And you know, Michael, this is an interesting article and we'll get into some of the details here, but I had Michael Episcope, uh, principal at Origin Investments on the show recently. And I mentioned that, you know, typically publicly traded REITs, in my view, were overvalued and he pushed back uh, and, and basically said, Andy, not right now, they're not, you know, they're trading at a significant discount and you're going to find some great values in publicly traded REITs. And, you know, reading this article reinforces Michael Episcope's point of view 100% because a lot of these publicly traded REITs are trading at huge discounts right now. And so they're really, um, there's not a lot of incentive to be publicly traded right? When you are going to be trading, let me dig these up um, in here because it, it actually, the article went into the discount by sector. Um, what do you think about this trend though, Michael, of, of more of these non-traded, excuse me, more of these publicly traded REITs being bought out by non-traded REITs? Yeah, I think, well, it, it certainly, I think, uh, lends, lends some support to, to Michael's pushback, I guess. And, and I think what he was saying, if I can just, just talk through it and make sure I, I understand here is that what's driving this trend is, well, a couple things. One, there, there's no new IPOs. So there's no new supply or no new REITs coming out onto the market. And at the same time, uh, existing REITs are, are buying up uh, smaller REITs typically. So there's you know fewer ticker symbols out there, publicly traded REITs out there. And I think what, what Michael was saying is, of course, they're buying other REITs because they're at attractive prices right now. Uh, they're, they're trading at uh, a little bit of a discount and, and they're, they're great deals. Um, so why wouldn't they put their cash to work and kind of acquiring what they think are good long-term assets at a, a discounted price? Um, and I see here that you've you know, you've, you've pulled up some of the some of the discounts here across the sectors, and there's a pretty big range here. And gosh, that number for office kind of jumps out at us, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's so so. Here's what's interesting. Yeah, it took took me a while to find it. This is a this is a very in depth article with a lot of detail. So, and by the way, we'll we'll link to all of these articles in our show notes, and this one in particular, I think, is worth reading. But the article points out the S and P 500 is down nearly 20 percent on the year, right? And if you think about private equity real estate funds, uh, private real estate fund managers are not claiming that their, you know, their assets are down 20% on the year, right? Like certainly they wouldn't be claiming that at all. So this is a case where the publicly traded project uh, products and the publicly traded assets, um, I guess, artificially look worse, or, or maybe the transparency of the market there is, is, uh, helping. That, you know those private funds right now, but private real estate has not gone down twenty percent this year. Um, and, and you know the article uh, cites uh, a report from Narrett and Real Capital Analytics data that estimates the market's discounts to NAV is eight point three percent in the industrial REIT sector, ten percent in the data center sector, fourteen and a half percent for self-storage, 25.7% for multifamily. That one surprised me. 29.6% for hotels, 32.7% for retail, and 45.5% for office. To be honest, Michael, hotels, retail, and office, that didn't surprise me much. 
Uh, when we see an economic downturn, you know, I'd expect those sectors to be pretty swingy. Uh, but multifamily trading at a 25.7% discount to NAV, that seems crazy to me. I mean, it, it almost, it, it makes you want to launch a private fund that that does nothing but but buys out publicly traded REITs, right? I mean, it seems like that would be a pretty good business plan if you agree, if, if you believe these, you know, discounts to NAV. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I had the same reaction, Andy, and I think, you and I, uh, another one of our properties, Opportunity DB, focuses on the Opportunity Zone space, and we see a lot, a lot, lot, lot of multifamily projects in Opportunity Zone funds, um, and particularly in the the Southeast and the Southwest United States right now. But man, that market—I mean, it seems like every every OZ fund we see, there's a lot that are exclusively multifamily. Uh, there's almost all of them have have some multifamily piece in there. I shouldn't say almost all of them, but a good chunk of them have at least some allocation to multifamily. And it seems like as the economic uncertainty has grown, that's been an attractive asset class because multifamily is way more stable than hospitality or uh, office, particularly over the last few years. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you, Andy. Yeah. And I mean, as you pointed out, traditionally, it's been a relatively, you know, stable, I guess, n- number of publicly traded REITs because some publicly traded REITs would go- get bought out, would go private, but there would also be IPOs. And the number of IPOs is just slowed to a trickle. And and why would you take a REIT public if it's going to, you know, immediately trade at this discount to NAV? Um you know, so on that note, and, and we should point out there, Andy, that that's not exclusive to REITs right now. I mean, the I, the IPO market is is I don't want to say frozen, but uh, it's pretty pretty icy right now. Um, I think there'll be a couple. There's a few more high profile IPOs coming down the the pipe this year, um, but that's kind of industry wide. Is you know, it's not a great environment for it with with interest rates going up and there being a lot of economic uncertainty. And you know, we've had a couple uh, a couple pretty great years here where uh, IPOs have uh, companies, younger companies have taken advantage of the favorable environment and, and done their IPO. So they've been kind of front loaded over the last few years. So that's not necessarily uh, exclusive just to REITs. That's kind of playing out across the market where there's not a lot of IPOs here. But uh, you're right, combined with the the acquisition activity, it leads to a pretty significant decline in the number of, of ticker symbols out there. Well, let me push back on that a little. I mean, you're right that IPO activity has slowed quite a bit, um, but according to the article, so there have been zero IPOs for REITs in 2022. The last time that's happened was 2001. Even during the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009, there were two REIT IPOs in 2008, and there were 11 in 2009 versus five take private deals through the first half of this year. So, I mean, I, I agree that IPO activity is very low, but, but even given that it seems like this is an outlier and it, you know, it's especially, uh, I guess, scary, you know, given the, the trend bringing me to our next article from investment news headline here, alts group, alts groups oppose state regulators REIT reform. Okay. So we're, we're going to talk about uh, proposed revisions to REIT policies 
from the North American Securities Administration Administrators Association. Boy, that's a mouthful. <laughs> the North American Securities Administrators Association. But so so many of these REITs and and uh you know are are going private. And of course, there's been just incredible growth in the non-traded REIT space in the last few years, which we've talked about on AltsDB, you know, in several past podcast episodes. So this space, the you know, the non-traded REIT space has heated up so much. Uh, but now we're hearing about some proposed regulations. Uh, you know, that are, you know, are making a lot of people sort of wake up and say, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Um, so let, let me just read this, you know, verbatim from the article. So early this month, the North American Securities Administrators Association released proposed revisions to REIT policies and began a 30-day public comment period that ends on August 11th. It's the first effort to update state-level REIT rules since 2007. The reforms include, uh, number one, raising the broker standard of conduct related to non-traded REIT sales to incorporate regulation best interest. Uh, number two, increasing the net income and net worth thresholds for investors who purchase non-traded REITs. Number three, imposing a purchase limit on non-traded REITs and other illiquid direct participation programs that does not exceed 10% of an investor's liquid net worth. And number four, prohibiting non-traded REIT issuers from using gross offering proceeds to fund distributions. And so this, this comment uh, period is, is ending pretty soon here, Michael. Let's see, we're recording this on August 1st. Um, so by, by the time you listen or, or watch this uh, podcast episode, the comment period will be closing uh, in less than a week. Um, and you know the IPA just to 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 get to the spoiler here the IPA the trade association that represents uh, the alternative investment space they are opposing this for sure they're urging people to take action uh, and I'm also I'm having a representative from IPA on the show in a couple of days so actually a just a couple of days after this episode uh, we'll air that episode will air all before this comment uh, period closes. So, you know, anyone listening who opposes this, you know, I, I urge you to number one, listen to this follow-up episode that I'm doing with a representative from the IPA. And number two, you know, to, to make your thoughts heard uh, while this comment period is, is still open. But th this is a big deal, Michael, because um, with, with fewer and fewer publicly traded REITs, uh, more and more of the REIT space is going to be these, you know, non-traded, illiquid REITs, and you know these are pretty significant revisions to REIT policies. Yeah. So, Andy, I think I'm I'm really looking forward to to hearing that that episode that I know is coming up with with IPA and kind of diving in here and understanding uh, kind of all of the the ins and outs here and and what exactly this would impact. Um, so I'll kind of you know, leave, leave that to the experts. I think there's, you know, there's some things in here that seem less offensive than, than others to me. The idea that we're going to have kind of a uniform policy across all the states instead of 
funds having to navigate. I think there's 20 different states right now have different, you know, minimums, net worth minimums, uh, et cetera, salary minimums, annual income minimums. Um, I, I think that, you know, having simplifying that is, is helpful, but, you know, I'll leave it to the experts to really dive into the weeds here. And I'm looking forward to that podcast. If I could kind of zoom out here and look at this from a, a very, very high level here and kind of get philosophical, um, you know, I'm not afraid to admit I'm a little bit biased here. I think that that asset managers and, and fund managers, when they do their job right, they help people retire. They help people pay for their kids' college. They help people uh, leave their estate to charity, like these really, really great things when, when they do their job right. And whenever I see you know a lot of regulation coming down the, the pipeline, my concern is always we're going to scare off the best and brightest. They're going to be so overwhelmed with the regulations and they're going to be so afraid that they won't be able to do their job despite their best intents without you know screwing up somewhere and, and going uh Break crossing the line on, on some rule that was well intentioned, but that they you know they they didn't know about, um, and they're going to throw up their hands and say you know screw it I don't want to take these risks I'm going to go you know do something else and and that uh, the asset management industry will be worse off for it and that kind of trickles down to those folks I mentioned who want to retire and send their kids to college and and donate their estate to charity so I'm getting a little a little cheesy and philosophical here Andy but um, you know that's kind of uh, that's kind of my high level thoughts here. Well, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, for instance, this 10% concentration limit on non-traded REIT investments, you know, so we have state level securities commissioners who are trying to micromanage individual investor portfolios. And, you know, are, are they doing this in other sectors with other type of investments, is there a ten percent concentration limit on you know technology ETFs right. or emerging markets index funds? Because you know tech ETFs or emerging markets index funds are likely going to have higher volatility than most non-traded REITs. You know, so it, this it's this really point. you know you know it, it, and of course you know the publicly traded. Uh, funds or, or, you know, exchange traded funds or publicly traded stocks are going to have more transparency, but that doesn't mean that the risk is lower. So if these, if these, you know, concentration limits are meant to lower investor risk, they seem very specific and not uniformly applied to all other sorts of wrappers and asset classes. And frankly, random, I mean, why 10%, why not 20%? Why not 22%? Why not 12%? Um, this just seems like uh, sort of silly, at least some of it. At least some of these proposed revisions seem like silly, you know, overregulation, micromanaging. Um, maybe some of them are more practical. Uh, so again, you know, we're going to have a representative from IPA on the show. We're going to dig through those details. Um, so please stay tuned for that. I think that's going to be a great show. I think um, that's fair, Andy. Whenever you add complexity, you know, there's there's a downside to complexity. I kind of just went through it and it makes makes people's jobs harder, makes compliance costs higher, which that, you know, who ultimately pays for that? It's it's the investor. Um so so when you're not the Ohio, it's not the Ohio Securities Commission. <laughs> like she she doesn't she can propose this rule and say that 10% is a great threshold, but she never actually has to, you know deal with the randomness and arbitrariness of that number or the complexity 
Yep. Arbitrary is a good word. Yeah. Subjective and arbitrary. Those have been the the, the two uh, words that you've used today that have, have jumped out at me. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's sorry to be the bearer of bad news in the alt industry. Um, but but now maybe here would be some good news. So speaking of policy and good ideas and bad ideas, it looks like we may actually get a build back better bill in 2022, a slimmed down version of it that Senator Joe Manchin has agreed to, um, sort of contradicting some of his, his prior statements, but I, I guess that's besides the point. Um, and I think for alternatives, you know, it's maybe it's a mixed bag, right? Because um, the plan is going to close the quote unquote carried interest loophole, as well as establish a minimum corporate tax rate. Um, and, you know, we, we can get into those details, but one thing that I'd point out right off the bat is closing this carried interest loophole doesn't actually raise that many dollars and cents for the federal government. Yeah, that, that's right, Andy. I think it's, is it, is it 14 billion? Is that the number that I, I think it's going to raise? Um, and I, I think I did the math. I think that that funds the government for less than a day. I think it's like 18 hours based on, on what we spent last year. So, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's not that much money. And, you know, look, this has been a controversial topic. I think this article said every president since, since I think it was the, the first Bush or excuse me, since, since George W. Bush, the second Bush has, has tried to close this loophole and it, it uh, has, has failed. So, uh, it looks like it's going to get done. Although, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, given the difficulties closing this in the past, it it doesn't. So, uh, yeah, I know there's some some strong feelings on this. I think you know, th- there's one side that says this is earned income; it should be taxed as as earned income. Um, you know, you know, I think there's a, another side that you can say, well, private equity, you know, they they yes, we, we uh, like to portray them as being these. Uh, evil folks on wall street who are uh who who are you know doing these horrible things but the reality is they invest in a lot of small businesses uh and small and mid-sized businesses and and that capital is crucial and now if you're if you're taxing them at a higher rate that means they're going to have less money to pump into pump into small businesses and to, to help entrepreneurs grow and launch their companies um so there's, you know, there's a, a few different, a few different sides to this. Um, certainly has been a, an issue that a lot of people are, are pretty passionate about. It seems to have uh, a decent amount of support, but uh, there's a, there's a downside to it as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think Joe Manchin is politically astute. And so the two tax increases that are in this proposed bill, I, I mean, I do think that taxing carried interest at ordinary rates is politically popular. Mm-hmm. And I, I think having a minimum corporate income tax rate, I mean, don't don't we already have that by the way, but but anyway, in theory, that should be popular. Uh, I don't know about, you know, hiring whatever it was, 70 or 80,000 new IRS agents. I don't know that that's gonna be so popular, but, but I think these two proposed tax increases are relatively popular. However, I, I don't know that we've heard from Kirsten Cinema yet if she will green light this. Uh, and you know, one one thorn, I guess, in in the side of Chuck Schumer right now um, is the fact that 
you know, it's it's not universally agreed to that this proposed bill uh, doesn't contain any other tax increases uh, on the middle class because there was an analysis by the Joint Committee on Taxation, um, which found that 49.7% of the tax would hit U.S. manufacturers. And the argument and, and the way that this is scored by the JCT, and I won't put you to sleep with all of the details, but the, uh, the assumption is, is that when you tax corporations, when you hit them with the higher corporate tax rate, some of that will be reflected in lower profits and lower returns to investors, but some of that will also be passed through in the form of lower real wages to workers going forward. And so, you know, that tax increase actually does end up hitting uh, working class, middle class, upper middle class, basically, you know, the folks earning less than 400,000 a year. Um, this does end up, according to JCT, um, the, the JCT taking a bite out of their paycheck, you know, like a tax. So I don't know, you know, this has been making the rounds. It's, it's it was obviously reported by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, also, it's been the subject of uh, a couple of different op-eds. Um, so we'll see how Kirsten Cinema, senator from Arizona, reacts to this. Um, you know, we'll see if it politically will fly. But but Michael, I'm going to frame the whole thing overall as as good news. You know me, I'm a sunny side up, glass half full kind of guy. And as I said earlier in the show, they were talking about limiting 1031 exchanges and all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, wasn't there a wealth tax being mm -hmm. proposed? I mean, there were all sorts of um, policy proposals that were unworkable, impractical, that could have totally tanked the real estate market. And at least those appear to be off the table. So I'd say overall, um, whether this passes or not, um, you know, certainly it, it could be a lot worse from that tax policy perspective. Yeah. And I think, I think what we learned there, Andy, is you're, you're not in favor or excited about the 86,000 new IRS agents who are going to be <laughs> poking around your books. <laughs> well, I, I hope they're lazy agents. Uh, you know, no, I mean, the thing is, is they're, you know, they're going to work hard, right? They're, they're going to find work to do. And some of that, probably will find new revenue right but you know as we've seen in the past you know people inside the irs can be politically motivated can have an ideological agenda um so no i i don't necessarily want an irs that has a whole bunch of new agents that are looking for work to do uh and i'm squeaky clean on my taxes yeah, right <laughs> but but i would look forward to an audit not uh, at all it would, it would be a huge distraction from from business at hand right so hopefully they uh i think everyone's in favor people will be in favor of it as long as uh they're not the ones getting audited right this is uh this is is, is nimbyism at its best go go uh as long as you're you know dealing with uh those folks in the next town over who i can't stand then audit away but if you show up at my door i'm gonna have different feelings about it right audit audit the the folks earning the carried interest and audit all the corporations to make sure that they're paying their new minimum tax, right? That's probably the political thinking. Uh, in practice, we'll have to find out. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a good note to end on. And that's a reminder to our listeners and viewers that all of the links that we discussed 
in today's episode will be included in our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And, and by the way, if you have a moment and you'd like to review the show on Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star review. That helps us tremendously to spread the word about the show. Uh, and we will be back soon with another episode. Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Andy. Always fun. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 